Chapter 18 of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter 18 Copeland River and General Work. Welcome Flats, Douglas River, Rua Reca, Strachan Glacier, Decrease of Native Birds, First Ascent of Ryan's Peak, Return to Hokitika, Conditions of Our Work topographical knowledge before describing our ascent of ryan's peak i shall give an account of the copeland valley which like all others on this side of the divide is of wonderful grandeur and bears many interesting traces of ancient glaciers it does not equal the twain and karangarua in the latter respect but for scenery it is in every way on a par with them before reaching welcome flats for a short distance some really bad and large boulders obstruct the valley and amongst these giants some beautiful glimpses of Mount Sefton and the footstool can be seen, with the great rata trees making an effective frame to the picture. Welcome Flats, some seven or eight miles up, form an ideal spot for a hotel. The surroundings would delight the heart of the most discontented tourist, provided, of course, that the cooking was good, for that seems to be a matter of greater importance to many than the scenery. Imagine for a moment an open, flat-bottomed basin, one mile by half a mile, in the high ranges, at each end of which the valley narrows to such an extent that it appears to cease. The river flows down over a grey shingle bed, one hundred yards wide, and has grassy flats on each side, for two hundred yards at the broadest place, with a terrace or two to vary the monotony of the level. Between the grass and the hillsides, another two hundred yards or so of flat ground is covered with luxuriant forest, which on the north bank grows up the spurs to a height of three thousand five hundred feet above sea level, or two thousand feet above the flat, and on the south side stops abruptly at the foot of towering grey precipices, which rise for three thousand and four thousand feet. These grand cliffs are cut into couloirs and gullies with wonderful effect, and their summit is serrated to a marvellous degree. Douglas waxes eloquent over this scene, and that should be good proof that it is of surpassing grandeur, because he has spent twenty years in traversing untrodden valleys containing glorious scenery. He likens the Sierras, as he named these cliffs, to a badly made saw. Quote, it looks as if some giant with little skill and a very bad file had attempted to make a saw out of the mountains. Other countries may show fine glaciers and higher mountains, but I doubt if anything finer than the Sierra exists out of the moon. End quote. Note. New Zealand Land and Survey Report, 1892-93, to page 43. End of note. I should not venture so far as the latter statement, for it is rather broad, but this part of the Karangarua range will some day attract much attention. Between the various peaks a glimpse can be caught of snow, which is the upper portion of the Douglas Neve, and bears out what I stated in the last chapter of the slope on the south and the precipice on the north side of the ranges here. To the north, Mount Little towers up, with a fine ice field of the second order on its slopes, looking higher than it really is, owing to its isolated position. The view of the peak is flanked by high, dark green bush-covered hills, which enclose a dark and gloomy valley, down which the Ruera River flows, draining the glaciers off Little and Copeland Peaks. The snow line on these peaks must be only 5,000 feet. It is difficult to attempt a description of such scenery, and Welcome Flat includes all kinds. On the one side, beautiful alpine and snow-covered peaks, on the other weird and awesome rock precipices, 
and in the midst a peaceful valley in which pigeons may be seen rocketing in the evenings and the few birds left by the weasels and cats are as tame as usual the douglas river is more like the upper twain in its surroundings not perhaps so fine in some respects but still far grander than most places accessible to the ordinary traveller mount sefton rises over seven thousand feet above the river in bare rocky slopes and precipices so steep that no glacier of any size can find a place the marchant glacier at the head of the valley has fine surroundings and owes part of its existence to avalanches from the cliffs above two good rock peaks on the north which i named unicorn and dilemma have one of those peculiar little glaciers perched on a narrow ledge so common in westland and due to a portion of the avalanche ice being caught in its downward career the short divergent banks range branches to the west separating the Strontian and martian glacier from near ruareka peak which lies at the head of the valley this peak we named after a maori woman who was said to have found her way over to the east coast many years before new zealand was colonized she had some ornaments and tools made of greenstone which is found largely on the west coast the naitahu tribe by whom she was found made her lead a party of warriors back over the range by her route the invaders seized all the greenstone they could find and many fights between them and the natimamoi tribe took place in which the latter were generally defeated te urira the chief of the defeated tribe however made a final stand at taihoka and endeavoured to drive the invaders back but was again compelled to give way he then retired further south with a few faithful followers taking his sacred mere the badge of office into the accessible mountains between the otago sounds and lakes and there disappeared rumours of recent date point to the existence of this lost tribe even now for fires are said to have been seen in the hills from the sea-coast but no reliable evidence of their survival has been found some of the naitahu tribe settled on the west coast and were in turn defeated by invaders from the north island who also left some of their number behind to intermarry with the vanquished tribe my old friend bill was descended from one of these north island men and had a south island mother the marchant glacier has five well-formed lateral moraines on the north side one of which is very fine having about two hundred feet slope to the glacier on the south and nearly one hundred and fifty feet descent on the northern side with an unbroken ridge of grass for some distance along the top the whole of the trunk is covered with heavy debris which gives the head of the valley a desolate appearance looking back however from a mile up the glacier the cliffs of mount sefton with slopes of scrub-covered debris at their base look very imposing and i very much doubt if such a grand series of rock precipices is to be found elsewhere in new zealand the southern end of the strontian valley is entirely blocked by a high moraine of five hundred feet through which the river has cut a deep channel whether this bar has been formed by the present strontian glacier alone or by the old marchant ice is not clear i am inclined to think that to some extent both are responsible for it the ancient glacier in the douglas valley was once the largest and most important and it is only because the surrounding hills are so steep and face the north that such a small remnant now remains from the point we reached about two miles up the strontian ice which is completely moraine covered the view of mount cook over baker's saddle is as good as any i have seen of the peak it is framed as it were by the fifteen hundred foot precipices of the unicorn and four thousand feet of sheer cliffs from mount stokes 
I believe, from the glimpse I had of Stokes in the fog, that at one place a stone thrown out, say, eighty yards, would fall four thousand feet without touching anything. The bluff was at the end of a short spur, which seemed to have been sliced down with a knife at the end, and the lower part of two sides, looking not unlike the buttressed and gabled end of a great cathedral, four thousand feet from roof to base. The avalanches, off the western face of Stokes, appeared to me, as to Douglas, to be swallowed up in their downward career by some gap in the mountainside. This we were able to account for after our visit up Cook's River, as already related. West of the Urrera River, which flows into Welcome Flat, Mount Little sends off a high spur, which encloses a large valley with Ryan's Peak. This valley is Architect Creek, and was evidently in the past occupied by a glacier. From the signs of ice action on the spur of Ryan's Peak, where I found two rows of boulders, suspiciously like old lateral moraines, it is possible that the Cook River Glacier sent a stream over the low saddle of 3,890 feet at the head of this valley. There are, however, few signs of ice action on this saddle, and I am inclined to disagree with Douglas on this point, and consider that the saddle was formed by constant denudation since the Great Glacier period. The valley of Architect Creek, however, has at one time, no doubt, been filled to a great depth with ice, either a glacier originating from the peaks around, or from an overflow of Cook Glacier. The valley, however, must have been very much shallower at that time. Before leaving the Copeland River, let me give an example of the decrease of native birds in some of the valleys, due to weasels and cats. In Douglas's report, already quoted, he speaks of the gradual disappearance of birds in all valleys during the last few years, and continues to say that, quote, Welcome Flats put one in mind of the other days. It was swarming with birds. The kiwis were of larger size than usual. The wekas were large-sized, more like Otago or Canterbury birds. The robins ate out of one's hand. The bellbirds sang its chorus in a style only now to be heard south of Jackson's Bay, while the blue ducks were as tame as of yore. With the exception of the kakapo, which I did not expect to see as I never saw one outside the mountain birch, every bush bird was represented on the flats. It is hard to believe that birds could disappear so quickly as they have in this valley. Compare Douglas's picture of peace and plenty with mine three years later. I should say that never, with the exception of Cook River and the Twain Valley, have I seen such a dearth of birds. Of kiwis, we neither saw nor heard a trace. Of wekas, we caught two and saw one. Dick says he heard one robin, which is more than I did. Bellbirds were either non-existent or silent. Of blue ducks, we saw one pair, so wild that we could not get near them. Whereas Douglas caught and shot some thirty wekas, and between twenty and thirty ducks for food on the river generally, and left hundreds, we only got three kakas, two pigeons, and two wekas, and instead of, like Douglas, finding too much to eat, and having to leave stores behind rather than bring them out. We took more with us than he did, and yet were on short rations for two days. Douglas was the first man in this valley, and between his visit and ours, except Fitzgerald, who did not attempt to catch any, no man had been into these solitudes. The decrease must be entirely due to cats, and to a greater extent, to weasels. From our camp, at the foot of Ryan's Peak, we ascended by the track Dick had blazed, and at nearly four thousand feet reached the open grass. The scrub here grew to a higher altitude as the hill faces the sea, 
and on the northwestern spurs I found the scrub at 4,500 feet, while on the southeastern side it did not reach much more than 3,500 feet above sea level. After travelling some hours, we reached a fair place for a bivouac, overlooking the Architect and Copeland Valleys. Close to us was a remarkable rock, the Spike, which is a feature in this view from just below the Futa camp on the Karangarua, and lies on the southern end of Ryan's Spur, just in the mountain scrub. It is a solitary column of rock, which has become detached from the rocky spur behind its present position, and, falling outwards, is now poised over the precipice into the Copeland Valley. This rock has a clear reach of fifty-eight feet overhanging the precipice, and is fifteen feet thick by sixteen feet in breadth, and has the appearance of a great gun mounted to command Regina Creek Valley, slightly elevated to drop a shell over the Karangarua Range. How far it goes back into the hill, or why it retains its position, is not clear, for it is on the brink of the precipice. Leaving our bivouac at 4 a.m., we travelled along a gently rising grass spur for two hours, by the light of a good moon, being able to see the mountains on our right like great spectres in the moonlight, while on our left the flat country was under a low mist. The sun rose clear and bright about an hour before we reached the first or lower peak of the range, some five thousand feet above sea level. Between this and the main peak, a narrow rock arete ran for a mile or more, too rotten and steep to tackle on the seaward side, and having too many awkward gendarmes to allow us to travel along the top. The side towards Architect Creek was smooth and sprinkled with snow, giving us some little trouble, for we had only one ice axe between us. Having traversed this slope, somewhat difficult in its present condition, for an hour, we reached a small glacier and found the snow in good order. Half an hour of steep walking over this brought us to the last rock, up which we scrambled without trouble. The peak is just under 7,000 feet and easy, but with the early winter snow on the steep rocks and with only one ice axe, it gave us an interesting climb. The last hour over the rocks and snow, combined with the most extensive panorama I have ever obtained of the great ranges, made Dick wish he had been with me the whole summer. He was convinced that there could hardly be a finer sport than exploring new country and putting in a climb at intervals. I can only say what we saw generally, for the effect of such a panorama of snow-clad peaks and glaciers, combined with deep valleys, flat country and sea, is difficult to describe even roughly. Alpine climbers who read this will sympathize with me, and at the same time picture the view to themselves. Those readers who have not climbed a peak above the snow line could never realize the glory of such a sight, even if described by the pen of a Ruskin. We could see the main range from Ellie de Beaumont to Mount Ward, a peak in the Landsborough Valley, the Hooker Range from Mount Monga to Mount Hooker, the whole of the Bismarck Range, Fox Neve, and Balfour Range were visible in the north. The offshoots of the Hooker Range faded away in the dim distance to the south, and Mount Little towered up like a miniature Matterhorn from the Stocky Hut across the valley of Architect Creek, to the bottom of which, 4,000 feet below, we could roll the loose stones from the peak. To the west, the low country with its moraine hills, lakes, and rivers could be seen from the Wataroa River to Bruce Bay, and within six miles the waves of the blue ocean rolling lazily shorewards, always four in number, for as one disappeared another formed, and though they appeared to be ever silently moving towards the beach, yet the number never changing gave them the appearance of still motion, if such a thing is possible. 
to the north the paparoa range by greymouth was not only visible but shows in the photograph i took from the peak a distance of one hundred and twenty miles the la perouse glacier swept down into cook river almost at our feet on the north in graceful curves and the course of the balfour river was open to no further question the view from here proving that our previous conclusions respecting the balfour and la perouse glacier were correct in every point after an hour or two on the peak basking in the sun and meditating on many things we returned leisurely to our bivouac and descended next morning to camp we left our loads and went on to scott's house here i stayed for a few days with douglas and then returned to the camp to bring our things down a severe gale blocked all the tracks so i was delayed till after easter when i bid farewell to douglas and rode up the coast for hokitika arriving there after four days riding this ride is usually dull and tiresome after so much work but it was varied this time by a ducking in saltwater creek where i took the horse out of his depth douglas having recovered somewhat went south to the waiatoto river where he has a hut and lives a hermit-like existence far from civilization amongst his beloved hills and surrounded by undisturbed nature the return to civilization was pleasant after eight months away of which only three weeks were spent in habitation and for the remainder of which our mode of life is very well expressed in the following extract from an article by professor ludwig buchner on quote, the origin of mankind end quote. Quote, now it is the shelter of a tree now an overhanging rock now a cave that affords primitive man a suitable sleeping place for during the day he hardly if at all needs a regular dwelling at times rough shelters are built of bark or branches of trees in bad weather end quote. this describes our life during a great part of the season with the exception that we had a piece of canvas always generally a batwing but never a tent the batwing is really comfortable enough for all practical purposes though i am perfectly aware very few would consider it fit shelter even for a week the hardest part of our life as no doubt has been gathered from the foregoing pages was the porterage of our provisions and other necessaries this was very heavy work over such rough country when enough stores for several weeks had to be carried by degrees up a river or glacier together with instruments field books and cameras it is a very different matter for a party out for a short holiday to go on small rations sleep without any shelter and so on for they have an easy retreat to their starting point to which they can take a good camp on a pack-horse but let me ask any of those who have said oh we don't carry this or that how they could care for a spell of seven or eight months with only one blanket a fly and batwing and as a rule only a spare shirt and socks by the way of a change of clothes and this in a part of the country where it rains about three days in a week and where flooded rivers have to be considered i am sure a man requires solid food and cannot rely on essences extracts and other such things entirely and if this is true then ipso facto his loads must be heavy when going on prolonged expeditions over rough unknown country i do not think that any one after trying a few months with us would be inclined to take anything off our list of necessaries they would soon come to the conclusion that several additions are needful to make life endurable we had not the means to afford an army of porters nor did the authorities provide for any additional help neither were we justified in rushing as fast as we could through the country and saying we had explored it the mountains valleys glaciers and rivers had to be properly examined and mapped with the branches and tributaries 
that is, as well as it could be done, with prismatic compasses. This was a matter of time, as has been seen. Hence, a goodly amount of stores was necessary, and therefore, again, loads were heavy. It is not intended to convey an impression that we thought the life hard, because we did not. Both Douglas and I loved the work, and accepted its hardships as a matter of course. I have only put forward a few arguments to meet the remarks which have been made in the past, and may be again in the future, to the effect that we carried unnecessary loads and lived unnecessarily roughly. It must be admitted that had we been able to obtain any cola biscuits, or any other food-saving invention, we could have avoided the spells of starvation up Cook River and in the Landsborough and Twain Valleys. When first I took up the work, I sent to England for cola biscuits, and any essence or extracts which might be serviceable. That was in 1893. Again, while in civilization during the winter of 1894, these things were sent for, but the orders were either never delivered or not attended to. They could not be obtained in the colony, so far as I could ascertain. Therefore, though we made a mistake in not having them, it was our misfortune and not our fault. Photography had to be done under great disadvantages. I carried no tripod. My plates had to be packed for 80 to 100 miles by the pack horse mail and risked getting wet or broken. They were then left in some kindly digger's hut until required. They underwent very rough and tumble usage in the ranges, and after exposure were often deposited under a stone or some other shelter until we returned and could pick them up. They were then probably again left in the care of a digger or sent by packhorse to Hokitika to be kept till I arrived and could develop them. Some of the valleys were so narrow and the mountains so high that many of the finest scenes, the Sierra, for instance, could not be photographed unless by chance we made an ascent on the opposite side of the valley. The exploration of the Twain and Karangarua completed the general exploration and mapping of the central portion of the southern Alps. For all the glaciers and valleys on the eastern side of the divide in this district had been explored by the end of the season, 1889-90, to 90, and the map completed the next year. So far as topographical knowledge is concerned, the information is very advanced. The Westland Survey Department has in its possession the trigonometrical heights and positions of every peak and call of the dividing range from Elie de Beaumont to south of Mount Sefton, with all the chief peaks of the divergent ranges. These were obtained years ago by the geodesical surveyor to the government, from stations on the seacoast and lower hills. In addition to these observations, they have traverses by Douglas and myself of every river and all the principal glaciers in this part of the Alps innumerable careful sketches, and some three hundred of my photographs from sundry points of vantage on both sides of the Alps, from which alone a map could be made approximately correct with the compass, clinometer, and aneroid readings referring to them. Unfortunately, however, the government do not consider it of sufficient importance to bring out a complete and accurate map such as could be made from the above data. They have, in the geodesical surveyor, a careful worker, an enthusiast, and the very man to produce such a map, but for some time past he has been unable to devote his time and energies to a work which no one in New Zealand could do with equal success. Consequently, this wealth of information is lying perdu in the office safe, and we see very indifferent plans issued to travellers. The Royal Geographical Society published the best existing map of this district in January 1893 to illustrate a paper by me on the Southern Alps. Note. The Geographical Journal, Volume 1, page 32. 
End of note. That was prior to the western valleys and glaciers being explored, and our last two seasons' work has greatly altered its appearance. There may be still considerable minor detail work to be done in the district, and a theodolite will have to be taken over the ground, of which Douglas and I have made the reconnaissance surveys, but the whole country is now explored. Of peaks and passes, there are hundreds to be climbed, and these will always add minor details to an almost complete map. The worst of it is that it will be difficult to say exactly what will be valuable as new information in the future until the material in Hokitika is worked into shape. Though some of our best peaks have been climbed, the topographical information derived from the climbs is of little value, for the object of the expeditions seemed to be merely the ascent of the peak. The fact is that all the main topographical features have been settled by those who climbed and explored prior to 1891. Note. See Appendix. Note 6. End of note. And beyond the actual topping of peaks, little was left to be done on the eastern slopes of this district, and, excepting von Lindefeld's ascent of the Hochstetter Dome, the complete ascents of the higher peaks were not made till after that date, namely Cook, Tasman, Sefton, Haidinger, de la Beche, Darwin, Maltebrun, the Silberhorn of Tasman, which is hardly a peak by itself, and Seely. The brunt of alpine work was borne by a handful of men climbing before 1892, and this is often forgotten. It is not right to contrast our unsuccessful ascents before that date with subsequent work, because we were learning the game, and those who came after us had the benefit of our experiences, and consequently saved a great deal of time and knew how to go to work. For men to attack such difficult country without guides or experience is very different from following an experienced leader. Though peaks were not scaled then, as they have been since, a great deal of necessarily hard work was done, and later comers do not always realize the benefits they derive from the gathered experience of the pioneers. The work of gathering topographical knowledge has to precede the ascent of peaks. The one may be called useful, the other ornamental. End of chapter 18